My name is Randall Speller. I was a uh, art librarian at the Art Gallery of Ontario for 29 years. I was introduced to the world of book illustration and design by uh, Sybil Pantazzi, who was uh, the chief librarian at the Art Gallery of Ontario. And she wrote several well, very important articles on the history of Canadian book illustration, which got me interested. And I, in those wonderful days when you could go through a bookstore and just roam through the shelves at will, and I started to collect the work of Frank Neufeld. I found wonderful books that I realized were not only illustrated by him, but were designed by him. So that's how I became interested in the history of book design. I've written several articles on Frank Neufeld. I'm very interested in local publishing in Victoria County. Victoria County is in Ontario. Peterborough, Lindsay area. Okay. So that's how I began. Welcome to the bibliophile. Well, thank you. The interesting thing about it is, as I always say, there was so little done that any amount of research automatically made you an expert. So uh, I quickly became, quote, an expert without really knowing all that much. It was amazing. The people were still around. The archives were still around. You could find lots of information. And they remain, these great designers, underappreciated, I think. Oh, yes, completely. So that's what we're trying to do here with this series of, uh, of interviews with experts like yourself. We're trying to trace the evolution of Canadian book design in Canada. So how about you take a stab at that? Well, I, I should say that the reason there isn't much known is that the craft was largely invisible. And all, every designer you speak to will say it's meant to be invisible. Yeah. But it's invisible in the sense that few publishers actually credited the designers who worked in their offices. Invisible uh, in the sense that if they're doing their job, the text doesn't come into play when you're reading the book. It you, just works. Yeah. But there was no credit. Like, there was no line on the verso of the title page that said, Design by. But we're talking, too, about not just typography, but dust jacket. The whole uh, thing. The, the whole, whole package. Yes. Paper. Okay. Binding, typography, illustration, graphics, the whole bit. Layout, pacing, everything. Someone like Arthur Stephen, who worked for Ryerson Press for 20 years, rarely had his name on anything, and often his dust jackets, if he illustrated them, were signed A.S. It took me years to figure out who A.S. was, but anyway, yeah. that's the type of invisibility you were dealing with. Publishers like McClellan and Stewart finally, in the 50s, started giving credit to their designers because they really were transforming the industry. But let's back up. Yeah. In the 19th century, probably up to about the 1920s, there was no real professional typography or design community in Canada. If you wanted to learn design, you went elsewhere. You went to the U.S. or you went to London or you came from there. That's very much the case up until the 50s. It wasn't yeah. until the arrival of the professionals in the 50s. And all of them were from Europe or trained in Europe, like Frank Neufeld, Angie Lingner, Leslie uh, Smart, Leslie Smart, all of them came in from Europe and arrived in Canada and just took over because the publishers were so desperate. And people like, oh, the names just went out of my skull. The Canadian who did the Alan CM, Fleming. Alan Fleming, thank you. He was a Canadian, but of course had to go to Europe to learn his craft. Came back, along with Carl Dare, came back and again moved into the publishers and okay. transformed them. 
But before that, there was a printing and design community. Canada was always famous for its newspapers. Wasn't it Susanna Moody who said that a Canadian can no more get along without his newspaper than an American without his tobacco? So there was a huge printing industry. I've um, heard that there's more community newspapers per capita in Canada to this day than uh, pretty well anywhere else in the world. And in the 19th century and early 20th century, it was even more mammoth before the newspapers all got amalgamated, but that's another story. So there was this huge typography community. They didn't learn it. They were taught it in a sort of apprentice system. They either learned it in England or in wherever they came from and brought the skills over here and bought the type and then set up their own presses and published newspapers, or they learned it on their own or were taught by someone. And in almost every case, you get this long history of apprenticeships of typesetters who perhaps started working as a a newspaper on their own in the 20s, and they learned how to set type. And uh, as the technology evolved, they would learn these new machines. That lasted right up until the 30s even into the 40s. If you look at some of the archives, like I looked at Ryerson just very briefly, and there were typographers who had worked for the Ryerson printing house in downtown Toronto for 60 years. They'd started when they were 14, and they retired when they were 74. There was a very large typographic union in Toronto and probably elsewhere. There was a famous typographer's strike here in the, was it the 1870s. There's a plaque in Queen's Park marking the typographer's union strike, which was one of the seminal labor disputes in the city. So often in a place like Ryerson, there was a set of in-house type, and that's the type you had, and that's the type you worked with. And these men, and they were mostly men, learned how to do wonderful things with the type that they had. Like uh, what? How to arrange them, how to put different type sizes in to make a book look different. The books largely had a uniform look, but they could play around with the type and set it so that at least it gave it some variety. But it wasn't great graphic design. Ryerson was unique also in that it printed its own books. What would often happen is that the house would choose a type and it would be sent off to some place like Hunter Rose. So Hunter Rose would just, you know, what paper do you want? How much do you want to spend? They'd print the book, cut it, bind it, send it back. And then sometimes a dust jacket would be printed, and it was largely text up until the 1920s. What changed all this was after the war, World War I, there was this sort of new nationalism about Canada. They decided that they were going to use artists to improve the look of the books. So they would do a few woodcuts, and they'd then maybe do a color jacket. When I say a color jacket, maybe two colors, white, black, and maybe one other. That would be really going all out. These were a group of seven. Largely. It was largely in Toronto and Montreal. Toronto was the center of English language publishing in the country, so a lot of the artists were used here. And, of course, the artists in the 1920s who were lying around and looking for work were members of the group of seven and all their contemporaries. J.H. MacDonald was a major one. All the members of the Group of Seven did some kind of book illustration. Franz Johnson, that's where Sybil Pentassi did that important article in the uh, National Gallery of Canada Bulletin on illustrations by the Group of Seven. And there were numerous others who started working. Often it was just the dust jacket. Occasionally they might dabble in woodblock illustration. Very rarely did they touch the type. 
they might make suggestions, but as per usual, the house had its in-house type. They did the end papers too. Uh, Sometimes. Yeah. As I would say, they usually dealt with the edges and the publisher dealt with the middle. Mm-hmm. And so that went along in the 20s, and of course all that came to an end in the 30s. There was still a little bit of illustration, but not much. They would quite often reuse illustrations in the 30s. You can find some illustrations being reused in other books. In the 30s, you were lucky if you got a book published anyway. The design work, etc., was pretty slim. But people like Thora MacDonald were still plowing away. Nicely put. <laughs> and so, you know, he was doing a few odd things in the 30s. But there's a few, been several people who don't really like Thora MacDonald. But you got to admit, he was producing some amazing things. Like what? Well, West by East, which is his book that was uh, published of his father's poems. I mean, an astounding book, published by Ryerson, I believe. Thora MacDonald was slightly different in that, for the first time, he had training in typography and he was not only creating the illustrations but he was also designing the text and he was placing the illustration in the context of the text pacing and if you see his uh, design layouts you can find where the text is where the illustration how big the illustration has to be in relation to the text what font he wants what size what type so he's working with the whole package and that's really quite new and so he's really a pioneer in that regard and of course he was lucky in that he had Lauren Pierce, who'd known his father and who was allowing him to push all these boundaries and work in a way that, well, really hadn't happened on that scale beforehand. Another book he did was Marie Chapdelaine, which was stunning, arguably the greatest book of the 30s. 38, 39? Somewhere. I wrote an article on a manuscript that's at um, the Art Gallery of Ontario, a book he never published, which was The Thoreau's Walden. Thoreau really was a wonder. But I don't know that there were too many others working on that scale. Uh, The 30s were sort of a dead zone, except for Thoreau MacDonald and a few major projects. But I can't think of, really, in English Canada, a single other project that even comes close. Do we have to wait until Paul Arthur in the late 40s? Well, there's a little flourish during the war years because they rise up in patriotism. There's no boats going back and forth during World War II because they're bound to be blown up. As a result, there's this little flourishing of Canadian publishing, and so you get things like Franklin Carmichael doing typography and woodblock illustrations for Grace Campbell's books, Thorn Apple Tree, The Higher Hill. But again, from a design perspective, nothing much to speak of? Well, not much. And then, of course, after the war, it... It was spotty. But, of course, what, ha- what was happening after the war was the technology was changing, going into high-speed, the linotype and all that stuff, which had been sort of filtering down for years. But the publishers in Canada all of a sudden were faced with the fact that if they were going to compete with the American market that was suddenly flooding Canada with magazines and books, they were going to have to produce high-quality stuff. They didn't have the technology, they didn't have the staff, they didn't have the money. So there was this huge slump after the war. And that's when the publishers realized they were going to have to do something. Uh, That's when they hired Arthur Stephen at Ryerson Press, who was arguably the first professional full-time designer. What year was that? 49. Angie Ligner arrived soon after that, and I think goes to U of T. Sam Smart arrives starts working at Longman's. They all start 
flooding. And Frank Davies arrives, I think, in 1954 as well. Frank Neufeld arrives in 1954. So the early 50s were the years when suddenly everything started to happen. Carl Dare arrives on the scene a little after, I think, 55. Alan Fleming, 55, I think. So that's when it starts to move. Mm-hmm. And the publishers just grabbed these designers because they realized they were never going to get away with something unless they transformed the books. Again, it was motivated by the fact that there was some really interesting stuff coming in from high quality England and the States. Yeah, and fabulous and they, stuff coming they, in. Yeah, and like what? Well, just beautifully designed, eye-catching books. There's a famous American book designer. Dwiggins? Yes, it might be him. There's another one, too, who were working with the American book trade. I think there's an article... Canadian bookman going on about how, you know, you put a Canadian book up, put another an American one beside it, and the American just blows it off the shelf. And of course that's what was happening. The American sales were going up like this and the Canadians were all and of course after years of sort of reasonably great sales during the war, they're in the doldrums. So they realize they're gonna have to do something. And so, you know, Frank Newfeld arrives off the boat in 1954. Well, it's a bit of a complication, but anyway. By Israel. Yeah, and he'd been here before. His, his mother and stepfather were now here. He'd been here in 52. He went back t- to London to go to school at Central College in London. Comes back in 1954, gets a job within two weeks doing work for Gage, I think, and McClellan and Stuart yeah. Nelson, and suddenly starts doing freelance work. Bang. And uh, what they were able to do was take these packages, and it was a financial issue as much as the design issue. They were able to redesign a book so that it would sell and do it more efficiently, more effectively, and uh, produce packages that were interesting. There was a famous one Frank Neufeld told me about, a school textbook that McClellan and Stewart, I think, was trying to sell. And it had been rejected by the Board of Education. And they thought it was a perfectly good package, but they couldn't figure out why it was rejected. Well, he took the same package, redesigned it, gave it back, sold for years. I think for more than 20 years, that was a school textbook in Ontario. I found various editions of it. Is that the one with the sort of triangles? Yeah. Okay, so uh, now there is an argument to be made for Betty Sutherland in in the contact press, Mm -hmm. who was designing her husband, Irving Layton's, books, Mm -hmm. among others. What's your take on her uh, influence? This would have been early 50s as well. No, what's really interesting is the difference between the trade press, the big trade names, and the, I won't call it private press, but the Small small, small literary presses. And I think the small literary presses were sometimes well ahead of the other ones. And this happens again in the 60s. The small literary press, like Talon Books, starts doing really innovative things. Coach House Press in Toronto. And and there was a whole bunch of publishers in Montreal, English-language publishers in Montreal, who were doing really interesting things. That's one thing I haven't really looked into is what was happening in, in Quebec. There, there was a much more of a tradition of paperback publishing paper-bound publishing as opposed to, as opposed to hard-case books that were being produced in English Canada. Sometimes there were things that were much more innova- innovative, but I think largely the same problems were facing the Quebec industry. They were using artists to transform some of the books, but for the most part it was an apprentice system that would go down, and it was then you get the smaller presses to do really interesting things. 
I'm speaking to Randall Speller, who is a book historian. <laughs> book design amateur historian. <laughs> now that we've, we've arrived in the 50s and this explosion of color and attention to uh, the way that, that books uh, look, perhaps you could talk about some of those books that, that are particularly interesting from the perspective, your perspective of a collector and what young budding bibliophiles should go out and seek. Hmm, interesting. Well, I've largely been interested more in the trade publications. So, well, I'm going to take this in two directions. I think for a collector, the highlights of the 1950s and 60s are almost too expensive for young collectors now. In the 80s, you used to be able to go into bookstores and buy stuff from the 60s for 25 cents, $10 for a really interesting thing. Like what? Well, for example, Leonard Cohen's Spice Box mm-hmm. of Earth. Which now, goes for north of 700 Yeah, now. I paid 350 for mine. I mean, that is almost, if you can even find it, is out of reach. And I'd say that's pretty well the most beautiful book of the 60s. Frank Neufeld design, yeah. and it's part of the design, design for poetry series, that published in what, 60, 60, 61. A lot of the Frank Neufeld books you can still find. Well, he did 650 yeah, books. He did, so. yeah, hundreds yeah. of books. If you can find them, that's the problem. The problem with bookstores now is that they're all online. You can't browse, and I can guarantee you, unless you have a very astute rare book cataloger, they're not going to put the designer in the information. Mm-hmm. So if you're looking for Alan Fleming, maybe someone will have put that in, but there's no guarantee. If you're looking for a Carl Dare book, maybe. Frank Neufeld, probably not, because it's all trade publication. So they're not selling the design. They're selling author and content. Title. Yeah. yeah, which is not a bad idea for a book. <laughs> but, I mean, if you're interested in the visuals and text design, you've got other things to worry about. So I think... Largely, the books from the 70s, 60s and 70s are disappearing off the shelves. You can't find them. They're becoming rarer and rarer. Which means what? That they're going into collections somewhere. Yeah. Or they're just not available anymore. You mean they've been wrecked or pulped? Pulped. Yeah. People uh, don't care. Yeah. And, I mean, there are books, let's be honest, there are books that you and I might be interested in as designers or as illustrations, which are not very readable. A good percentage of those early Coast House books. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, you're not interested in the content. Yeah. You're interested in them as cultural and visual artifacts. So, for a young collector, I would advise that you look at the smaller presses, because a lot of those things tend to be kept. But even things like Coach House Press... Almost impossible now to get a complete run, I would think. All that early stuff is gone. And ANSI, you know, unaffordable now. So all that stuff from the 50s and 60s is, I think, gone. It's not one of these things that you'll never find, but there's enough of them out there to make it kind of fun to go after them because you will be surprised. You will find enough, I think, to keep you doing it. Yeah. Would, would you agree with that? Yeah, but I think you're going to be frustrated ultimately by very significant gaps. And if you're collecting a designer, you might never get everything, especially in an Internet environment, unless you have a list, some kind of authoritative list. Have you done a bibliography for Nufo? In part. 
Because every time, every time I think it's done. Yeah, they're never done, are they? Yeah. Somebody says, oh, by the way. And Frank is the one who always says, oh, by the way. Now, there's some <laughs> book I did in 1961, and it's... Uh, so, yes, uh, uh, the bibliography. Yes, I do have one on my computer somewhere. It's, I doubt it'll ever be complete. So what are you saying then? What, what is exciting to go after and what's cheap? I think there's a lot of interesting things. The advent of the computer, someone really needs to do a look at book design in the days when computers were started in the early 80s and 90s. Everything sort of became cheap and nasty with the, with the early computers. There was no design feature in the computers. It was just easy and cheaper to publish. So you got a lot of really ugly books being produced. But, you know, some people were able to manipulate the software to produce interesting things. And then, you know, once the inkjet printing came out, they were trying to reproduce the impress of the type into the paper and the quality and the strength of the type. So gradually by the 90s, things started to get a bit more interesting. I think in the last 15 years, book design has come back in the fore publishers are starting to recognize that if they're going to produce books, they need designers. If you're into collecting designers, I would start in the 90s and start looking at what their trade publications are doing and the small press publications, Gasparo, see what they're doing, collect them. And then there's designers like Peter Cocking and C.S. Richardson, who are all working for the trades, but they're doing really, really interesting books. And you'll be able to find those church bins and Salvation Army stores and stuff. So if you're a young collector and you're interested, look what's being done in the last 15, 20 years. What do you think is going to be valued valued most in the coming years? Newfeld is still a wonderful focus for a collector, I would say. Oh, yeah. Investing in books is not going to make you rich. Quite the contrary. I was an art librarian, and people used to say, if I collect this, will it gain in value? And I said, if I knew that, I'd be retired. <laughs> so collect what interests you. Whatever sends a shiver down your spine. Whatever sends a shiver down your spine. And once you add knowledge to that collection, it becomes invaluable. What do you mean? Well, if you collect, as I did, I collected Frank Newfeld just by finding books with his name in it. I knew nothing about Frank Newfeld. And as far as finding information on Frank Newfeld, there was nothing. There might be a few newspaper clippings, that type of thing. But there nothing been, had been written seriously about him, and it was so scattered you couldn't see it. You couldn't. It wasn't easy to find. So, I mean, I went and interviewed him. Once I had a, what I thought was a body of his work together, I went and interviewed him. What a thrill. And what a thrill, and put to, started to put together some information on him. Well, there's scores of information on him now, and I'm not claiming any credit for it. It was just no one else had done it go do it. So there's still designers out there. And so you can gather a collection of, let's say, somebody as contemporary as C.S. Richardson. Go talk to them. I think collectors have to not only collect, but they have to write about their collections and add knowledge to their collection and make sense of their collections. And once they do that, I mean, the collections become much more valuable. Not just financially, but intellectually. Mm. Contribute to the I don't know if this sounds a bit uh, pretentious, but to the body of knowledge yeah. about Canadian culture and literature and the history of books and publishing in this country. Because unless somebody does that, we, we just have shelves of books. It don't mean anything. 
Well, they mean something to the person, but once the person goes, dies, or gets rid of the collection, so what? I know this sounds a little bit precious, but but why is the role of the collector important to a culture? Oh, I think it's vital, because you can't rely on the state to do it. You can't rely on the museums to do it. The great museum collections or library collections in the world have all been started by private collectors. And so this obsession to acquire things, which is can be dangerous, um, if the person is willing to invest the time in finding out what they're doing and why they're collecting and why these things are important, I think it's essential to culture. Why? Well, if you take what you find, what you collect, and you study it, you you know maybe even publish something about it, it makes a contribution. And most of what we know about book illustration and design was started by collectors who started writing about what they owned. Sybil Pentazzi, she was known as the 25-cent queen for the reason. She went around and she bought up books for 25 cents at yard sales and Salvation Armies and bookshops. And from that, she wrote about what she had. So, again, it's a contribution to... What? Learning about what our fellow countrymen, women have well, it's a, it's, done? It's the history of books and publishing and cultural production in the country. And I mean, if you're interested in the humanities and the arts, it's essential. I'm going to push this to the point of boredom here. Why is it essential? Well, nothing is essential, ultimately. <laughs> That's right, because but, there is no meaning unless we give it yeah, meaning. Yes, and nothing <laughs> is essential. Any society that's ever been important, we focused on its cultural contributions to the world rather than, you know, how many widgets it made. And we admire Rome for its roads, but we really marvel at its architecture. The learning that came out of Greece and Rome, we we look at Europe and we don't admire its... Uh, horse and buggies, but it's the culture that came out of it. So that's a bit pretentious. But Canada... It's so young. It's yeah. so young. And I think Canadians have this nasty habit of thinking that nothing important has ever happened here. And there's lots of fabulous things that have happened here. And the reason we don't know is that we haven't done anything. We haven't done the research. We haven't told it to each other. Yeah. I always say to students that as far as Canadian book history is concerned, publishing history, take a dart, throw it at the information wall, and you'll hit something that hasn't been done. It's a great field, wide open. It's, it's so wide open. And, of course, that whole field of book history, which you know brings in so many aspects of different parts of learning, science, art, publishing, it's all connected. History. You can just bring them all together using book history. Uh, there's been a book written about pretty well everything you can imagine. Yeah, and so look at that, the history of science publishing, the history of, there's so much you can pull together. So for the young humanities scholar, it's the perfect field. Great. Well, thanks for... <laughs> Have I said, made any sense whatsoever? <laughs> no, thank you. I've, I've been speaking with Randall Speller, who is an amateur Canadian book design historian. Amateur based. in the best sense. In the best <laughs> sense. In the fact that nobody pays me. <laughs> <laughs> and you do it for the love of it. Yeah. Thanks again. Thank you.